0: Well, grace and peace be multiplied to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ as we uh, continue our worship in the Word this morning. Let's take a few moments to bow in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be uh, in the presence of your people as you are with us in this place. We're grateful to worship in song, worship in giving, worship you in the word. And Lord, as uh, we turn to your word, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for the truths therein. Uh, we pray what we know not this morning, please teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, that you would make us, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this past week, I spent a few days in Arizona. I was at a memorial service uh, for my grandmother, and in preparation for that memorial service, uh, I was tasked with calling different people to um, uh, invite them to the service, and one of the people that was on my list was an older Christian couple who was our neighbor growing up. And I got to call them up, and we got to catch up a little bit. And in our conversation, I was asking about how they were doing. They were asking about how I was doing. And at one point, they began to ask about our church in Oregon. And you know, whenever folks ask about a church, they sometimes ask about the size of the church or the denominational affiliation, if there is any. But his question was very specific. He said, are you part of a spirit-filled church? And you know, I paused for a moment because uh, I thought to myself, well, what do you mean by a Spirit-filled church, first of all? And I didn't have a chance to get into the details, but I assumed he meant in accordance with Ephesians 5.18 that says, don't be drunk with wine, don't Don't lose control to to drunkenness, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, submit to the power of the Holy Spirit. And I answered this way. I said, said, we're not a perfect church down in Oregon, or up in Oregon. We're not a perfect church, but I'd hate to be a a part of a church that wasn't spirit-filled and submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the ministries of our church. This morning, I'd like to turn that question around on you. If someone were to come to you and ask you, in a biblical sense, if you're a Spirit-filled believer, you've submitted to the control of the Spirit and continue to submit to the control of the Spirit in your life, if you're a Spirit-filled believer, a part of a Spirit-filled church, how would you answer What evidence would there be in your life that you're a spirit-filled believer, a part of a spirit-filled church? Would there be evidence this past week? Would there be evidence this past year, I know we're just in February, would there be evidence simply this morning on your way to church to say that you and I are spirit-filled believers? This morning I want to help you answer that question in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 13 and reading to verse 25 together as we consider the evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The evidences, and we're going to take a look at three of them, that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives as you make your way there in your Bibles the letter of Galatians is all about the gospel the good news of the gospel of grace Paul declared it and defended it in the first four chapters. He declared that guilty sinners are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. And having declared the true gospel and defended the true gospel, in the current section we're in, in chapters 5 through 6, Paul now applies the gospel. If we have been redeemed from the curse of the law by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, Paul is answering the question, how then shall we live? In light of the freedom that we have been provided in Christ, how then shall we live? In the first 12 verses where we were last time, Paul said a life of liberty should not lead to legalism. Don't get entangled again by the yoke of bondage. We were delivered from the demands of the law and the penalty of the law. Well, as we are continuing to read this morning, he's going to also tell us that a life of liberty does not lead to license to sin. It doesn't lead to a licentious lifestyle because some people might ask the question, well, if you're going to preach the true gospel of grace... That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the moment you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, all sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. You know what you're doing, Paul? You're giving people a license to sin. You're giving them permission to sin because they know their sins are going to be forgiven anyways. And Paul says, no, no, no. A life of liberty doesn't lead to a license to sin or a licentious lifestyle. It leads to Love empowered and enabled by the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart and in our lives and in the ministries of our church. And we're going to take some time in our text to consider the three evidences that the Holy Spirit is working in and through our lives and in the ministries of our church. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13 and following. For you, brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things which you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Where the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. Uh, I want to ask this simple question. What are the evidences of the Holy Spirit in our lives? The evidences of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer who's part of a Spirit-filled church and whether you not know you are a Spirit-filled believer, the first evidence in verses 13 to 15 is a life of liberty that leads to love. A life of liberty that leads to love. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is active and moving in our hearts and in our lives. Paul begins and he reminds them of their identity in Christ. He says, For you, brethren... In verse 13, for you brethren have been called to liberty. He reminds them two things about themselves, that they are brethren. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And number two, that they've been called to a life of liberty. First, that they are brethren. You know, uh, this is so significant and important for us to remember that if you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you have joined the family of God. When Paul calls these believers, brethren, we're reminded that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are part of God's family. Uh, We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if you go back to like Galatians chapter 4 verse 5, Paul reminded them what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. It means that we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed from the curse of the law we've been redeemed from the demands and the penalty of the law we've been redeemed in the sense that we've been bought out of the slave market of sin and when we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ because of the new life we have in him we're reminding each other or you're reminding me that we are among the redeemed of God What a wonderful blessing that is to be reminded of. Not only are we among the redeemed of God bought by the precious blood of Christ but when we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ we're reminded that we have received adoption as sons. Isn't that amazing to think about for a moment? We're born into this world with a sin nature. We don't serve our father in heaven God. We serve the desires of our flesh and our father Satan but God through our faith in Christ, has adopted us, adopted you and I as sons. Not only that, when we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, if you go to chapter 4 verse 6 again, we're reminded that as sons we receive the spirit of the Son by which we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. And so this morning, I want to remind you, as Paul reminds us, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of the family of God. You and I are redeemed by God's blood, Christ's blood on the cross, who died for us. We are recipients of the adoption as sons, and we have the assurance and the boldness to come before God, and in the most intimate possible way, cry out, Abba. Father, I mean, think about that for a moment. It would bring you to a place of worship. So Paul reminds them they are brothers and sisters in Christ as we are brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the family of God. Secondly, that in our text, they have, as we have been, called to liberty, called to freedom. Um, To be called to liberty or called to freedom uh, means that for freedom, Christ has, has made us free. You go back to chapter 15, or chapter 5 verse 1, excuse me, Paul put it this way, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Uh, Other translations put it this way, For freedom Christ has made you free. So the reason Christ redeemed you is so that you would enjoy the freedoms that Christ has provided you. First, that you would, that a life of liberty, number one, as we talked about last week, would not lead to legalism. But secondly, that a life of liberty would not lead to licentious living would not lead to a license to sin as people think that sometimes, well, if all my sins are forgiven, I can do whatever I want. No, if you are forgiven of Christ, you have been delivered from that. Paul continues in verse 13 and says, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Um, In Romans 6, Paul put it this way. He said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? After all, if God is glorified by means of the grace that he has provided us, the more I sin, the more grace he provides me and the more glory he gets. And Paul says, no, no, no. How shall we who continue to sin that grace may well, certainly not? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If you've been given freedom in Christ, you are not free to sin, you are freed from sin sin We've been delivered from it. We don't have to go back to our old sinful lifestyle. It's like Lazarus after he's unwrapped from his old grave clothes going back in. We've been delivered as a dog returns to its vomit so a fool returns to his sin. How many of you knew we've been set free, delivered from the penalty of our sin, delivered from the power of sin moment by moment, day by day, and one day we will be forever uh, delivered from the presence of sin when one day we are glorified. In John chapter 8, 34 to 36, Jesus put it this way. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a a slave to sin. If you've been delivered from sin and that sinful lifestyle, why would you want to become, go back into bondage to it? You become a slave to it. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free in deed. In other words, do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. When we're talking about flesh, we're not talking about our skin, right? We're not talking, as John Stott puts it, the, that which clothes our bony skeleton. We're talking about our sinful nature. Whether you realize it or not, we are born into this world with a sin nature that is corrupt, where our hearts are bent towards rebellion rather than obedience to our God. Um, David put it this way in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And you know what Paul is saying here? Do not not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not abuse the liberty and the freedom Christ has provided you, but walk in the freedom that he has given you. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so he says, do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but use your liberty as an opportunity through love to serve one another. This morning, I have to ask you the question, is your life marked by selfishness or is your life marked by service? If you want to know whether or not you are a spirit-filled believer, part of a spirit-filled church, consider whether we are more selfish or we are more prone to service. If you want to know if you're a spirit-filled husband or wife, consider whether or not you are uh, more marked by selfishness or marked by service. If you want to know if you're a spirit-filled parent submitted to the work and the control of the Spirit, are you more prone and marked by service or, or selfishness? If you want to know this morning, if you are a Spirit-filled believer, a part of a Spirit-filled church, are you marked more by selfishness and preference in the local church, or are you more focused on serving one another with the gifts that God has provided you? When you walk in, you're not thinking, how can I be served today, but how can I serve accordingly. Use your liberty as an opportunity to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, in love. And if ever you should see selfishness and you say, okay, how can my spouse serve me? How can my children serve me? How how can, instead of how can I serve, it's a reason to take an inventory of our hearts and our lives and say, well, am I marked by the love of Christ? If you want to know someone who was marked by service rather than selfishness, it was Jesus. If you want to know how much Christ loves you and I, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Jesus loves us so much. The Father loves us so much that Christ was sent to this earth to give his life in order that we might have life, that we might receive the forgiveness of sin, that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. And Paul says, use your liberty as an opportunity for love. As Paul continues in verse 14, he says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, now, Paul is not saying that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves as a means of salvation, right? Because we're justified by faith and not by the works of the law. The reason we can't love our neighbor as ourselves and love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is the summation of obeying the law, is because in our sinful state we cannot. But when you are justified by faith and not by the works of the law, how then shall you live? Not towards licentious living and live however I want, but rather to freedom in Christ. And then through the Holy Spirit, I'm empowered to love my neighbor as myself. And Paul puts it this way, you shall love your neighbor as your Self. You know, Jesus had a conversation with a man in Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10. I invite you to turn there if you, if you can for a moment. Luke 10, 28 to 37, where a man was talking to him and Jesus was saying, these are the two most important commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so uh, he wanted to make sure he was in a right standing. So he asked God, Jesus, excuse me. He says, Jesus, who is my neighbor. And many of you are familiar with this parable. It's a familiar one. It's the good Samaritan. And I want to read it to you. Luke 10:28 to 37 because it will help us see what it looks like to serve one another in love. Uh, it says in verse 29 of chapter 10 but he wanting to justify himself said to jesus who is my neighbor because if i'm supposed to love my neighbor the first step is to know who it is is it my geographical neighbor my closest neighbor is it the closest neighbor in my house you know who is my neighbor and jesus answered and said this a certain man went down from jerusalem to jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. This man's on a trip. He gets robbed. He gets stripped. He loses everything. And it says in verse 31, now by chance a certain priest came down the road. Thank the Lord for pastors and priests, because you're thinking it's a man of God. I've just been robbed, I've I've just been taken advantage of. Thank God for spiritual leaders in the church. And he says a priest came down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He probably had to get to church or do something, you know. He was in a hurry. I mean, he said, I don't have time to deal with you. He kept going. Verse 32, likewise a Levite. Well, if the priest can't help him, at least there's another man of God, a Levite. And it says, when he arrived at the place, came and looked. So he took a look at him, passed by on the other side. So he didn't help either. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan. Now, you have to understand this. In their culture, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were like half-breeds. And so you, did, you, you hated the Samaritan so much, you avoided Samaria altogether, just went around it to avoid them. But it says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? So who is, who is my neighbor? And the man answers, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. If you're going to use your liberty as an opportunity to, through love, serve one another, you have to first begin to know who your neighbor is. And Jesus answers, your neighbor is anyone you have an opportunity to be neighborly to. To whomever God has placed in your life, to whomever God has placed in your circle of influence that you have a unique contact with, that is your neighbor. And it's a reminder this morning that my neighbors are different from your neighbors. But the first step is to know who my neighbor is. You've got neighbors who live in your house and sleep in the same bed as you if you're married. And that is your closest neighbor. And the question is, are you loving them as you love yourself? You've got people in the same home as you. Those are your close neighbors, but you've also got those in the workplace. You've got those in your circles of influence and if you haven't filled out a circle of influence card, 8 to 12 people that God has placed in your life, here's the first step. Write those names down. Begin praying for them, investing in their lives and then see what God begins to do in and through those relationships. Who has God put in your circle of influence for you to love them as yourself? The assumption is we tend to love ourselves. When I'm hungry, I don't know about you, I go and I open up the the pantry and I and I and I go get some food and I eat it. So if somebody's hungry, one of your neighbors on your list, you, they're hungry and they have need you feed them. If if I'm tired, what I go do? If I have time, I go take a nap or I go to bed at night. If your neighbor on your list needs rest and they don't have a place to rest, you help provide it. If they're sick, if they need help, if they need prayer, you love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question this morning is, how do you know you're a spirit-filled believer, part of a spirit-filled church? Well, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? So verse 14, he says it summed up there, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, if you're not serving one another through love, you know what the what you're doing? It says you are biting and devouring one another. Beware lest you be consumed by one another. In other words, where there is conflict in the church, where there's dissension, where there is gossip, where there is whispering. Psh, psh, psh. There is not the fruit of the Spirit, there are the works of the flesh. And What we're called to do is to abandon our self-centered selfishness. And we are called to a life of service through love one for another. So the question I have to ask us this morning, are you a Spirit-filled believer submitted to the control of the Spirit in your life and a part of a Spirit-filled Church, I know you're not perfect because I'm not perfect. I know that our church is not perfect. But the question is, how can we submit and surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit moment by moment, day, in the day, day by day in our lives, and as we allow God to work in and through the ministries of our church? I'd like to ask you three questions as you consider that for yourselves. Number one, is your faith grounded in the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ? If you are going to be a spirit-filled believer, a part of a spirit-filled church, your faith must be grounded in the truth of the gospel. Isn't it interesting? Paul spends four chapters talking about the gospel. And he spends two chapters talking about how it applies to our lives. You know, I don't know if you were with us every single week as we've been working through those first four chapters, but there were weeks where I was thinking to myself, we're preaching the same thing every week. It's just the gospel, the gospel, the gospel said in different ways. And people came up to me and said, man, we really are pushing the gospel right now. Yeah. Because whenever the Lord repeats himself in scripture, we better pay close attention, right? And so he grounds us in the truth of the gospel. We are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. You don't work your way into heaven. You trust God for your salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. And when, if you want to be a spirit-filled believer and live out the Christian life as he's called us to, it begins with staying rooted and grounded in the truth of God. The gospel, And so that's the first question. Second question, is there evidence that you love your neighbor as yourself? Is there evidence in your life, when you think about your neighbors, and who you have an opportunity to be neighborly to, that there is evidence of that? First, um, just if I could give you just a few ways to love your neighbor. First, love your neighbor by getting to know their name. Do you know the names of... The person. Maybe you just look at your left and your right right now real quick. Do you know the names of those on your left and your right? And if you don't, by the end of the day, take some time to get to know their names. Can I give you another, another task? By the end of the day, turn to your neighbor on your left and your right. Not right now, but maybe a little later. And after service, ask them, how can I pray for you this week? That's a great way to serve your neighbor. And the next week... Go find them and sit next to them again and ask them how the Lord has been working in their life. That is a great way to love your neighbor. Get to know their name. Get to know their needs. Thirdly, love your neighbor by serving their needs. You know, um, uh, when last month, when we had this ice storm, our electricity had gone out, and right after our electricity had gone out, one of my neighbors right across the street from us called me on my phone and I answered it, and I figured he was just saying, you know, hey, you, I lost electricity. Did you lose electricity? And I said, yes, I lost my electricity. You probably lost yours too. And he said, no, no, no. I know we lost electricity. I just, he works at a, they own a coffee shop. And they said, hey, we're going to go get some coffee right now. As the electricity's out, can we get you some coffee? Can we get your kids some hot chocolate? And I said, bring it on over talk about a, a loving neighbor who, who's, who's looking to serve me. I mean, your electricity, you're thinking, what's next? You know, we didn't know how long your electricity is going to go out at that point, right? And yet they're thinking of us as their neighbor. How can you serve your neighbor? How can you serve others? And then so, is your faith grounded in the gospel? Is there evidence of love for your neighbor? And then thirdly this morning, is your life marked by selfishness or Service. My prayer is that it would be marked by service. And the only way that it could be marked by service is through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who resides in our hearts. So first, the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a life of liberty that leads to love, that leads to love, through love, serving one another. Doesn't lead to legalism, doesn't lead to license and licentious living, it leads to serving one another in love. Second, evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the ability to overcome the lusts, the desires, and the appetites of the flesh. One of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life, whether you want to know if you're a spirit-filled believer, part of a spirit-filled church, is whether you are experiencing victory over those sinful desires in your heart and your fleshly desires. Paul continues on in verse um, 16 and says, I say then. Paul says, I don't want you to listen to what those false teachers have to say. You know those Judaizers who were telling lies that the gospel... Of freedom and grace leads to a, a license to sin. No, no, don't listen to them. I want you to listen to what I have to say. I say then, here's the truth of the matter walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The command is walk in the Spirit. The benefit is you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, I need to overcome my fleshly desires and appetites and the lusts of my flesh, the command is here walk in the spirit it's very simple we can talk more about it in just a moment but how do you how do you find deliverance and victory over the desires of the flesh walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh how do you walk in the spirit well to walk in the spirit is to live a life enabled and empowered by the holy spirit moment by moment and day by day the 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 pursuit of spiritual maturity is not us doing anything. It's just us allowing the Spirit of God to work in and through us. And so the first step is to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I don't know if you know this, but the moment you put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, something changed in you. Not only did you become a new creation in Christ, but the Holy Spirit of God took up residence in your heart. You know what you're described as? A temple of the Holy Spirit who resides in you. And so that's an important reminder here. As we're walking around, we're living temples. Can you imagine that? And the Holy Spirit lives in us. The first step to walk in the Spirit is to acknowledge the Holy Spirit lives in you and the Holy Spirit is your helper and mine. Why did God provide us a helper? Because there is something lacking within us. In our own ability, and our own In our own desires, we cannot fulfill, uh, uh, pursue spiritual maturity, but with the helper we can. John 14, 26 to 27, Jesus told this to his disciples. He's about to leave, right? He's been with them for three years, and he says, listen, guys, I'm rolling out. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise three days later, and I promise you, I'm going to come back again in glory, and I've got a task for you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they're like, no, Jesus, we can't do it without you. We need you. You cannot leave us. And Jesus said this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. You've got the Holy Spirit. And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. 27, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be troubled afraid. This morning, I want to invite you to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. When you wake up in the morning, you recognize your desperate need for the Holy Spirit to live in and through you, and you must be willing to rely on him. You know, this morning, when you wake up in the morning, it's important that you say, Father in heaven, thank you for another day. You've placed breath in my lungs. You've placed purpose in my life. And the reason I'm here today is to serve you. But I'm going to need your spirit to enable and empower me to accomplish the task before me. You remember when the disciples, after, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, I want you to wait into Jeru- Jerusalem. Don't leave yet. He could have told them, hey, start going about preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. He said, no, 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 you don't go anywhere. You go and have a prayer meeting. And he says, wait till I show up. And you know what? How many know what happened next? The Holy Spirit enabled them and empowered them. Acts 1.8 but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, but if I was going to start a worldwide movement, I would not have chosen those 11, 12 disciples. Did you see Peter? I mean the spokesperson of the group always putting his foot in his mouth. How many of you know that God often qualifies the call, doesn't always call the qualified? Why? In order to demonstrate that it's the power of his spirit that accomplishes those Purpose is. And so the Holy Spirit's our helper. Acknowledge him in the work that he accomplishes in your life, the co- work that he accomplishes in my life. And as you walk in the Spirit, you're also to abide in, in Christ. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What's your job and mine? Stay connected. We don't have to work really hard. We simply have to stay connected to the power source and then allow the God to work in and through us. And so this morning, we're to walk in the. And when you walk in the Spirit, acknowledge the Holy Spirit's work in your life and what he accomplishes in your life. And through our church, and, and, and as you um, submit to the work of the Spirit, as you abide in Christ and stay connected to him as a branch in, uh, does, does the same thing, um, there you will see the fruit that will come therein. And it says, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. What we learn here is that there is a war, an inner war going on inside of us. The Bible says, as we've said earlier, the moment you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Listen, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you this morning, you are not a child of God. You have not received the adoption as sons. If you have the Spirit of God, you belong to Christ. If you don't, you don't belong to Him. And so this morning, I want you to know, if you're a believer and you trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your heart, and you are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. But just because the Spirit is in you doesn't mean the flesh has been forever eradicated. When we trust in Jesus, um, the We are delivered from the penalty of sin. We're being delivered from the power of sin, but we're yet to be delivered from the presence of sin, which is why there's this ongoing battle within. Um, Romans 7, 18 to 20, Paul put it this way, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells, For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Does anyone identify with Paul this morning? And you have that inner battle within. One of the marks that you are a genuine believer is acknowledging the ongoing struggle. Now just because you have an ongoing struggle does not mean that you can't have ongoing victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you are, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and now you realize there's a struggle. Before you put your faith in Jesus, you were thought you were free from religion and faith and all the rest. You talk to people sometimes. They say, I don't want to be in bondage or slavery to your religion. I say, I'm not a slave to any religion or ritual. I'm free in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. But they think they're free. Free to sin and licentious living and to do whatever they want. But what they don't realize is they are really slaves. Slave of of their sinful desires. Slaves of of their appetites. And when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you realize there's an ongoing struggle within. But God has provided you the Holy Spirit to overcome moment by moment and day by day. And the mark that you are submitting to the work and control of the Spirit in your life, moment by moment, day by day, is the victory that God provides through him. And when you get the victory, you realize, oh, that wasn't me. That was God, and I'm going to give him all glory honor, and praise. So there's that ongoing battle within. And then it says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In our own sinful state, if we're under the law, we cannot please God, but through the power of the Spirit, we can. Then Paul, in verse 19, begins to list the works of the flesh. Now, as he makes this list, it's longer than the list of the fruit of the Spirit, Uh, I want you to know the emphasis is not on the number. If you count them up, you say, okay, there's 15 vices here. The emphasis is on the nature. And so I want you to know when you read this list, it's not saying, okay, this, 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 and this, but Paul is going to say in a moment, uh, those who practice such things. And so it's not an exhaustive list. It's it's a representative list of, of sins that dominate the life of one who walks in the desires of their flesh and their fleshly appetites. And so uh, not that we need to Break these down into categories, but if you were to break down that list of vices, um, the first category would be sexual sins. Paul begins by describing the sexual sins. Now, the works of the law are evidence which are adultery, fornication, sex outside of marriage. Fornication is the term pornea there. It refers to any deviation from God's Original design for marriage between one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship. And whenever sex is taken out of God's original design, that is what is called sin. And I don't want you to miss this, because in a moment, Paul is going to say, I've already told you about this, and I'm going to remind you again. And so as we walk through this list, I want to remind you here this morning that when God calls it sin, it's sin. And as we continue to read, this is sin, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. It refers to any impurity when it comes to sexual deviances. So it covers a wide range of things. Lewdness. We're talking about licentious living. Lack of restraint, where you fully give yourself over to the desires and the appetite of your heart. And so he begins with uh, sexual sins. Uh, The second part, he goes into religious sins. He says, idolatry and sorcery. Um, Idolatry is having a counterfeit God. Anything that you anything that you trust in or, 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 or put your anything that replaces God in your life is, is idolatry and that's a counterfeit God and then he talks about sorcery it could be translated witchcraft it's not just a, a counterfeit God but counterfeit power and these pagan religions, what they would do is they would get on some kind of drugs and seek out some counterfeit power in the occult or something like that. So it's any, any counterfeit power that you're seeking. And I could go into a list of things. I mean, we're talking about um, um, anything from horoscopes and trusting what the stars have to tell you versus what God has to tell you to getting on drugs and saying, okay, I'm trying to seek the powers of, of this other world. And so we're talking... Talking about idolatry, sorcery. Um, so those are religious sins. Then relational sins. Hatred, um, contentions. So hatred ultimately leads to conflict. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, uncontrolled anger selfish ambitions as we said earlier. Uh, We are to be marked by service, not selfishness. The work of the flesh is that of selfish ambition. I'm thinking, how can I serve myself rather than serve others? Dissensions, heresies, just being departing from the truth. Um, Envy, and we could go to verse 21 and say maybe these are personal sins. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, just excess in, 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 in drinking, and alike. And so Paul says, and alike. And so this is not a exhaustive list, it's a representative list. And he says, of which I told you beforehand, I told you their sins in the past, I tell you it again. And he says, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That term practice there doesn't mean to slip up every now and again. You know, you're Walking down the road, you slip up and you repent and you say, no, I'm done with it. When we're talking about those who practice such things, we're talking about those who are dominated by these sinful lifestyles who have given themselves over to the desires and the appetites of their hearts. And Paul says, those who live such a lifestyle, who have given themselves over to this sin, there is no evidence that they are on the path to heaven. That is evidence that they are on the highway to hell. This morning you may say, wait, wait a second, I've... I've I've got some sins that I struggle with. I've got some habitual sins in my life. Now, you may be a true believer. God knows your heart this morning. But if the Spirit of God really indwells you, the Spirit of God will then produce the fruit of the Spirit. And if you, if you say, well, am I truly a Christian? Am I truly a believer? Can you lose your salvation? No. The question is, if 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 you're if you've given yourself over to these sins, the question is, were you genuine to begin with? But if you this morning you're saying, "Am I a true believer?" Because we're not here to to put to question your salvation. God knows your heart. But ultimately, if you need to wonder, "Am I truly saved?" Go back to the gospel we talked about in the first four chapters. You are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. And if your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, the fruit of that is not a life that leads to legalism or licentious living. It's a life that leads to service through love and will produce the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to talk about in a moment. And so, is there the fruit there? Is there the evidence there of a Spirit-filled life? And so, Paul gives that list in these verses. And so, let me ask you this. Are, is there evidence that you are a Spirit-filled believer, a part of a Spirit-filled church? If I could ask you these questions, the first one is this. As I asked earlier, are you grounded in the gospel of God's amazing grace? This morning, I want you to know, if you take a look at that list or sins like that list and you say, I'm guilty, I have good news for you this morning. That if you will deal with your sin at the cross, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He died. He rose three days later. He promises to come back again in glory. And he offers forgiveness and salvation for anyone who will believe in him, trust in him, and deal with their sins at the cross and walk in genuine repentance. And so if you need God's amazing grace this morning, begin by trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord and stay grounded and rooted in the truth of the gospel. So are you grounded and rooted in the gospel of grace? Secondly, are you walking in the Spirit by abiding in Christ? Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then thirdly this morning, are you grieved like the Holy Spirit by any sinful lifestyles in your life? If you take a look at that list, are there any habitual sins in your life? This morning I want to ask you, are you grieved? Because one of the evidences that you are truly saved is there is a Spirit of God that dwells in you that when you participate in sin, the Spirit of God is grieved. Ephesians 4, 30 to 32 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, you got the assurance of your salvation. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So it's not a passive walking in the Spirit. It's an active walking in the Spirit as Christ enables you through His Spirit to accomplish his purposes. But let me ask you this seriously, face face to face. Are you grieved by the sin in your life? Are you grieved by the habitual sin in your life? Um, To be grieved when the Holy Spirit's grieved the same way that we're grieved when we lose a loved one. When you lose a loved one, your heart breaks, right? As Christians, if they're believers, we weep, but not without hope. But our heart breaks that we cannot be with that person. Listen, when you are inactive sin in your life, the Holy Spirit's heart breaks. It's grieved. How many of you know, are you grieved by the sin in your life? The next step would be in James 4, 7 to 10. Therefore, submit to God. This morning, I I pray that if you are not grieved, you would ask God to grieve your heart for your sin, that your heart would break for what sin does in your life. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God, I am double-minded. God, I need clean hands. God, I need my heart purified. Verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. This morning, I don't want you to leave today if there's a sin in your heart and your life that you haven't dealt with at the cross. If there's a habitual sin in your life that has now become a lifestyle, my prayer is that you would abandon those sins. There's a moment we're going to say crucify those sins, deal with them at the cross, and find victory in Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord. Do you really believe that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power available to you and I to overcome those vices and those sinful tendencies in our lives. He is enough, he is sufficient, and he is able. So the first evidence is a life of liberty that leads to love. Second evidence is the power to overcome the lust of the flesh. The third evidence that you're a spirit-filled believer, a part of a spirit-filled church, is the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in mine. Paul continues in verse 22 and says this, but but. I want you to know that the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other. And what we are to bear as believers is fruit in our lives. And so it says, but the fruit of the spirit. What does the spirit produce versus what the flesh produces? It's love, joy, and peace. First, love. When we're talking about love, we're talking about Christ's love. If you want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus who came, died, rose, died for our sins, sacrificially became our substitute. That's agape love. That's sacrificial love. That is selfless love. And that's a love you cannot produce in your own power and your own ability. I remember on my wedding day, we made vows. And I still remember making vows to my wife And in my vows writing, I cannot do this in my own power. This is an impossible task to love her sacrificially, selflessly, unconditionally because God knows my heart is incredibly selfish. It's prone not to service but to selfishness. And moment by moment, day by day, Lord willing, I'm looking a little bit more like Jesus every day and the fruit that will show forth whether I'm a spirit-filled husband or not is whether or not there is love. And I can tell you, oh yeah, I'm a spirit-filled husband. But you might want to check with my wife first. And so love, joy. Joy is not dependent on happenings. It's dependent on the presence of God in your life. It's not like emotions that are up and down with the circumstances of life. God gives you a joy that is not dependent on what's going on in your life. So love, joy, peace. Now, I also want you to know this this morning, that the the text says fruit of the Spirit doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. And so, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit as a cluster, like a cluster of grapes. And so, if really the Spirit of God is in our life, it's not that we'll have love, and then we don't have self-control. I mean, no, if you say, oh, I'm a loving person, but I lack self-control, well, you're not really bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about a whole cluster of grapes being produced in our lives. You can't have love without self-control. You can have peace without these other things as well. It says love, joy, peace. It's peace of God that transcends all understanding. It's not just peace with God. It's the peace of God. Then we go into long-suffering or patience. Sometimes you're waiting on God to move, to work in your life, waiting for him to accomplish his purposes in your life, and he grows us in our patience, in our, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) long-suffering. Kindness. Um, It's how we, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, treat one another. Um, Goodness. We're speaking of moral excellence in regards to, Um, reflecting the character of God, faithfulness in our our love for God and our commitment to him. Gentleness is often referred to as power under control. And then, of course, self-control. This morning, if you would say, I lack self-control. I'm not as loving as I should be sacrificially and I don't put the needs of others before our own, my own. What you need to do is walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ask God to produce and ripen this fruit in your life. Against such there is no law. Verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's a reminder of our identity in Christ. Paul said earlier in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I don't do it in my own flesh, in my own ability. I rely on the power of the Spirit who works in and through me. And as I fight the battle within, I'm reminded of this truth. I've been crucified with Christ. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Um, let us not... Uh, or. And then the text ends there, and we go into verse 26. But but this morning, the encouragement is, am I a Spirit-filled believer, part of a Spirit-filled church? Well, is, are you bearing fruit in your life? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? And the best way to discern that is not by coming up with this list and saying, yes, I do good well here, here, and here, but asking those who know you the best to take an inventory of your life and ask them to speak into your life these things. Let me give you two questions as we conclude. The first is this. Is your faith grounded in... The gospel. It's a question I've asked three times and I ask it again. Do you know the true gospel of Jesus Christ who died, rose, and offers salvation as a gift, forgiveness of sins and everlasting life? And number two, is your life ripe with the fruit of the Spirit? You know, my prayer as a husband is that I would be a Spirit-filled husband, as a father, a Spirit-filled father. My prayer as a pastor, I would be a Spirit-filled pastor. My prayer is that in my relationship to my neighbors and my friends, I would be a spirit-filled neighbor and friend to those around me. That as I get to share my faith with the lost, that I would be spirit-filled, submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit who works in and through me, and open the hearts of those who don't know Him. Let me ask you this question. What would happen if we were spirit-filled believers, submitted to the work of the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives? What would happen to our church if we we were a spirit-filled church. Jesus told us that we would take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Can we pray for that this morning? Heavenly Father, uh, none of us are perfect, which means, Lord, we're not part of a perfect church. But our desire, knowing that we've been justified by faith and not by the works of the law, is that we would be submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives and submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit through the ministries of our church. Father, our longing and our desire as those in this room for husbands and wives, for fathers and mothers, for members of this church to be spirit-filled to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, to walk in the Spirit so that we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who has a particular sin in their life that they've struggled to overcome, a, a particular habitual sin that's on their heart and mind right now. I pray, Father, that we can just deal with our sins right here, right now at the cross. Receive your forgiveness. Lord, that our hearts would break for what breaks yours, that our hearts would be grieved by our sin, but that we would be reminded that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us and enables and empowers us to live out the Christian life and fulfill the task we've been given to go and take the gospel (coughs) to the ends of the earth. Father... There's someone here today who doesn't know Jesus, but would say, I want to get to know him. I want to make him Lord of my life. I pray that they can express this. Father, I recognize my need for you. I need my need Jesus. I admit that I'm a sinner, and my sin separates me from you, God. But I believe that's why Jesus came and died and rose. He came to forgive my sins on that cross. He came to buy my salvation and give me everlasting life. Today I make Jesus my Savior. I make Him my Lord the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, thank you for your word and the power of your Spirit who indwells us and empowers us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.